Hi you guys and welcome back to another true crime and makeup time video. If you're new here, my name is Zara and I post a new true crime video every single week. So if you love makeup and you love true crime, definitely hit the notification bells, subscribe, and I would love to have you join the fam. Also, definitely leave a comment down below if you have any cool case suggestions, any unknown ones, stuff with good information, and I would love to do it for you guys. So today's case was requested by Monica, and thank you, Monica. It's an incredible case. It's about a young girl who was terrified of sleeping alone, and then the day she finally did is the day she was abducted. This case does deal with child abuse, violence, and sexual assault, so just please be warned and let's get into today's case. Today's case takes place in Dickinson, Texas. And like most kids, Jennifer Shute was just enjoying her summer break. It was August in the year 1990. And Jennifer lived with her mother, Elaine, who was a single mom. And they lived in a small little modest apartment. And she had just finished the second grade and she was looking forward to starting her third grade at Cybernagel Elementary School. Now, Jennifer, like most kids, she was afraid of the dark. And because of that, she hated sleeping alone. I mean, I think I still am till this day afraid of the dark. Sometimes like I have to like psych myself out of it. I'm like, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. You know how you see like shadows in the dark and you're kind of like, what's up? But it's your mind. So on the night of 10th August 2000 and nope, 1990, it was a hot summer night, and on this hot summer night, Jennifer, she climbs into her mother's bed as she did every night, ready to go to bed. And her mother, Elaine, she actually had a really big day at work the next day. So as Jennifer was sleeping, it was like the middle of the night, Jennifer's mother, Elaine, she wakes her up and she says, you know, Jennifer, you know, can you sleep in your own room tonight? I mean, at this point, Jennifer never slept in her own bed alone for an entire night. So she was, you know, obviously afraid. She was little. I mean, Jennifer was young. She was only eight at this time. So understandable why she was afraid. But she says to her mom, okay, mom, because I love you, I'm going to go sleep in my own bed tonight. So Jennifer goes to her own room. She pulls out her piggy bank. She starts to count the change in there. She grabs some books and then she kind of like drifts to sleep just playing with those things. But what happened to Jennifer next is just so wild. So soon after Jennifer falls asleep, she feels like movement. So she wakes up and she realizes she's in the arms of this complete stranger. It was a man and she had no idea who this man was. She had never seen him before. And this man, he entered in through her bedroom window as she was sleeping and he took her. So obviously she started to panic. So he places his hands over her nose and her mouth. Like he wasn't suffocating her, but he was like calming her down, like calm down, calm down. And then he was telling her, oh, I'm a police officer. Like I'm taking you back to your mom. He says he was undercover. And then he places um, eight-year-old Jennifer in his car. And then they start driving around town. So as they're driving through town, they pass her own like grandparents' house. And then they end up in the parking lot of her school, like her elementary school. The school was only like two miles away from where her apartment complex was. So he goes and he parks, you know, in this elementary school of hers. And I don't know if he knew this was her actual school. Maybe he thought like she's in familiar territory and she'll, 
like feel more comfortable, but he ends up going to her school and parking in the school parking lot. So in the parking lot while they're in the car, he offers her candy and she refuses to take it from him because, you know, you're an eight-year-old and especially back then, like, candy being offered to kids was like the way that they would try and abduct kids. So she had learned not to take candy from strangers. So she just said no, she declined. But then also at school, you know, they teach you that law enforcement are the ones to protect you. So he had been telling her he was with the police. So she was kind of being pulled in two directions. Like, do I trust him? Do I not? She didn't, she didn't really know what to do. She was eight years old. But even as an eight-year-old, she just had like this feeling in her gut, like something just wasn't right about the situation. And I think we all have that gut instinct. Even if you're like a young kid, sometimes you just know. And now the way Jennifer was raised, her mom, she would never even go out to like party or hang with friends really. So she had never been watched by anyone, like no babysitter or anything like that. She was only ever watched by her grandparents. So while they're waiting in the parking lot, this man tells Jennifer like, oh, your mom was supposed to come and pick you up, but she just never showed up. So he started up the car again after about five minutes of telling her that. But Jennifer said it felt like forever. And then he drove her about a mile past her school into this overgrown like area of bushes. So this overgrown area was just like off a gravel road. And it's when they pulled up over there is when Jennifer started to question the fact of whether he was really a police officer. She was super curious and she would ask him like, well, if you're really a police officer, like where's your gun? Where's your badge? And basically sort of challenging him, like, you know, prove it to me, prove it to me that you're a police officer. So then as she's questioning him, he tells her, okay, my gun's actually in the back seat. You can go and grab it. And then Jennifer just knew something was wrong. She, you know, at this point was like, okay, I think I'm kidnapped. And I mean, like you guys, I have so many stories of when I was a kid, like wild stories. And I fully, like some people are saying, you know, how, how would she have known she was eight years old? I totally get it. Like, I feel like she at eight years old would have definitely known, oh my God, I'm kidnapped. And I don't think like the real panic would have set in because you're still young. You don't get it really. But at the same time, you know that something is wrong and you're not in a good situation. So... Now it gets a bit graphic, so just be warned here. So Jennifer stands up in the front passenger seat of the car to look in the back seat. So she starts looking for the gun. And as soon as she realized, like, there is no gun, that's when this man, he, because I'm guessing she was in her pajamas or something, a nightdress, he reaches and he just, like, grabs her underwear and pulls it down. He then laid her down in the front seat of the vehicle, and removed her clothes and began licking her all over her body. She then blacks out because either he's choking her or like his like force on her is too much. And, you know, he was trying to either choke her or break her neck one or the one or the other. And during this time is when he sexually assaulted eight-year-old Jennifer. So the next thing that happens is that Jennifer, she wakes up because she feels like this like gravel and like sticks and stuff like poking her and she wakes up and she realizes realizes she's being dragged through a field by her ankles and she can feel all these like thorns and leaves and sticks poking her but she just doesn't say anything. She basically was playing silent, almost dead, like like she was dead already. 
But during when she was being dragged, she didn't even realize that at the time she already like passed out once again. Soon after she blacks out, she kind of wakes up again and she realizes that she had been placed in like a fire pile, like a pile full of sticks and stuff. And he leaves her there. And then he like she heard him get in her in his car and then drive away. Jennifer was eight years old, snatched from the safety of her own home from her bed while she was sleeping, taken by a stranger, brutally attacked, and then just left in a field to die like she was trash. Now, the next morning, her mother, Elaine, obviously she goes to check on Jennifer and wake her up. And can you imagine her panic when she found out that her daughter, Jennifer, was nowhere to be found? This literally happened the one night her daughter did not sleep in her bed. Like... I can't even imagine the fear of a mother discovering that. Now, I'm guessing Elaine did call the police. I don't really know much information about her mother. It doesn't really say. But in the meanwhile, while all this is happening, Jennifer had been laying in this field for, you know, between 12 to 14 hours because we don't know the exact time she was snatched. So they can only estimate, you know, at this point it had been like 12 to 14 hours from when she was laying in her bed. Because this is the next evening now. It's not even the next morning. The next evening, a group of children are playing like tag in, a, in that same field. And these kids, you know, stumble upon Jennifer and they find her there. And she's alive, but she's barely, barely breathing. They ran to get help and discovered essentially that Jennifer, she had been laying, well, placed on an ant mound. And these ants had bitten her like all over her entire body like now while Jennifer was laying there she had been unable to move or scream and soon she sort of gathered the strength to reach up and like feel for her body and that's when she realized that her entire throat had been slit ear to ear and honestly like her not moving or screaming or you know she just kind of like laid still that's probably what saved her life Jennifer then goes in and out of consciousness and suddenly she sort of like wakes up to an officer, a real police officer, kneeling down right next to her. And he says to her, you know, <clears throat> it's going to make me emotional. <clears throat> he says to her, you've been found. You're going to be okay. Just stay with me. Just stay with me. Like he as well was really distraught, really, really hard for him to even make that discovery. So soon she is airlifted to the hospital and she is treated for a lacerated throat and a severed trachea. And, you know, the doctors managed to save her life, but they were worried that the damage from the severed throat was going to make it impossible for her to ever speak again. So now at the hospital, Jennifer can't speak, but she does everything she can as an eight-year-old, guys. Like, keep that in mind. She's freaking eight to help identify the man that did this to her. Jennifer in the hospital helped create the sketch of the man that took her. And I'll put this up on the screen somewhere here. She just never gave up. And just days from when she was attacked, she already began like writing down everything she could remember about it. So she writes down everything about that night. She says she was asleep in her bedroom. This man, you know, came in through her bedroom window, grabbed her, took her to his car and tells her he's an undercover cop. You know, don't be scared. 
But she states that, you know, he didn't have any gun. He didn't have any badge on him. He had nothing to prove that he was actually a police officer. Basically, she gave the police like all these details of the abduction, including um, the brand of cigarettes that he smoked that she found in this car. And she also had one thing that she remembered, and that was his name. He even told her his name. His name was Dennis. And she says that she remembers him being super greasy and he may have had like a scar or something on his face. And there were a bunch of beer cans, like empty beer cans in his car. Just every little detail that she could remember, everything that she thought was going to help find him. So after two weeks of being in the hospital, Jennifer was discharged by the doctors to just recover at home. And after those two weeks, Jennifer got her voice back. Like amazing, amazing little girl. So there was some evidence that was found at the scene. They found um, Jennifer's clothing and then they also found a pair of men's underwear together with a like a man's t-shirt. Now at the time the the DNA evidence was too little and the police were also limited by like the technology of the time you know the DNA like not much could be processed. So even after, you know, all this evidence and then also Jennifer's like sketches and descriptions and details, like the investigation just was not going well. It was not proving to be helpful at all, even though she was so helpful. After a while, the leads stopped coming through and the years began to pass on by. So the case was handed over to like different investigators, but it still yielded no results. And it wasn't until, and this blows my mind, 19 years later that they would finally get something. So just putting that into perspective, this guy got away with this hor like horrific crime for 19 years. And then on top of that, Jennifer had to live with this for 19 years. It's not like she was like a tiny little girl where she maybe would have just like thought it was a bad dream. She was old enough to know like this horrific thing happened to her. And not only that, she lived with like a single mom. So like, I can't imagine like how in fear both of them had been living for probably a long period of time. With the technology that was improving, even like a small amount of DNA was able to be like tested and, you know, hopefully it was held, right? So the evidence from the case was sent to an FBI lab in Quantico, Virginia. Now, Jennifer says she spent nearly every single day since the attack searching for this man. The attack was always in the back of her mind. Like she, like every day she was always looking for a suspect, like whatever clues sort of like would come to mind. She was like, is that you? Is that him? Is that, you know, like I can't, it's torture. She's like, it could be my new neighbor. It could be someone that I see at the post office. It could be someone I see in the grocery store. It could be the server serving me at this restaurant. And then she thought like, is he actually watching me? Like, is he, has he got his eyes on me? I mean, everywhere she looked, everywhere she went, she thought about him and she probably tried to live as much of a normal life as possible but it was very difficult she said just the unknown of it would drive her crazy at times just not knowing who did this to her and why they did this to her in september of 2009 they got a hit on the dna the attacker's identity was finally known and his name was dennis earl bradford insane so who was Dennis Earl Bradford. One year after he attacked Jennifer, Dennis met an 18-year-old woman named Lisa when he was just 21 years old. So he would have been only 20 at the time of the attack. They met in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and um, they married like just six months after they initially met. 
They ended up having two kids together, a son and a daughter, but their relationship didn't last long because his drinking got the best of him. And one night in 1996, so when he was like 27 years old, he was at a bar in Arkansas. And he's at this bar and he asks a woman there, like, can I buy you a drink? Now, this woman, she said no, she wasn't interested in him. So Dennis went back to the bar a little while later and he was like, okay, well, then can I, like, do you want to play pool together? Again, she said no. And then he waited again and then he went back again a little while later and he was like, hey, do you want to play pool? So this time she said yes. And then he buys her a few drinks after they're hanging out at the bar he then offers her a ride home. He's like, I'll take you home. She's like, okay. And I'm guessing he was behaving normally at that time. So she trusted him and she's like, I'll, I'll take this guy's like offer for a lift home. So he takes her home like this long way because he wanted to hear this song play on the radio. And then he turns onto a back road. He stops the car and then he attacks her in the car. He chokes and punches her and then she loses consciousness as he drags her like out of the car. And when she woke up, she was naked. Her clothes were scattered in this field. Dennis told her not to move. He goes back to his car and he gets a knife. And then with the knife to this poor woman's throat, he rips her and then he cuts her. He slashes her throat from ear to ear, just like he did to Jennifer. So then that same year, he was charged with first degree murder because this woman survived. Prosecutors then, for some reason, reduced these charges to one count of kidnapping and one count of rape, which I don't understand why they did that. So in terms of the kidnapping charge, I had to write it down because it was so confusing. But the court basically said as to the kidnapping charge, the defendant alleged that the state had not proven its case because the restraint on the victim's liberty was no more than was necessary to commit the offense of rape. So they were basically saying that he didn't use more force than necessary to rape her. Like he didn't really kidnap her, even though he, he did. Um, so, but anyway, the jury, they ended up deadlocking on the rape charge for some freaking reason, but they went ahead with the kidnapping charge and he was sentenced to 12 years in prison for that. And um, he had to give a DNA sample for the system. This sample was then placed into the CODIS system, the FBI's CODIS system. And this CODIS system is basically like a register of everyone's DNA, like not us, but like criminals DNA. And it takes care of like local state as well as national databases. So it's just basically like if you commit a crime here and you live all the way here, and then you can be connected to either through this system. It was basically created to allow authorities to like have a searchable database for DNA. And obviously the goals are to link crimes to each other and identify possible suspects who have committed crimes in different states. And yeah, it'll match crime scenes to convicted um, offenders. Meanwhile, this 12-year prison sentence, Dennis only served like three years of this sentence and he was paroled on February 4th, 2000 and then he moved to Little Rock. On November 8th, 2001, he was arrested again for driving under the influence. And then in 2004, he married a woman named Elizabeth Weber and they settled in Little Rock, but Elizabeth, she already had three grown children. And then Dennis's parole then expired on uh, in April 2008. Then on 10 September 2009, Dennis and a 19-year-old woman were found in his car. 
And this was an area that was known for prostitution. And Dennis tells the police when he gets caught that he picked up this woman at the gas station and offered her $20 for sex. Well, oral sex. And then um, he was picked up and um, arrested for soliciting a prostitute. Now, that same year, in September 2009, a new detective was placed onto the Jennifer Shute case. His name was Tim Crummie, and he had expertise, like very good experience in child abuse cases. And as he was looking through the evidence and everything like that, he was like, wait a second, there is so much evidence collected in this case. Like back then it couldn't be tested, but we have so much right now. It's been 19 years. Specifically, he was talking about like the clothing that was found and um, the men's clothing, the men's underwear, and there had to be DNA on it. So he started to focus and you know, like recollect all this DNA and look through it and try to um, see what he could do with it. And he then submitted it um, back into um, DNA analysis um, with the lab of the FBI and the CODIS system, right, was there at this point. So because of Dennis committing that kidnap and rape, his DNA was inputted into that system in 1997 and it matched. On 14th October 2009, Dennis Earl Bradford, at this point he was 40 years old, he was then arrested in Little Rock and he had been living in this area for like seven years at that point and police found out that at the time he assaulted Jennifer, he only lived like three kilometers away from Jennifer's apartment, which is like, how many miles is that? Someone comment below. <laughs> I think it's like six miles. No. So after a long, long, long police interview, Dennis finally um, confesses to the kidnap, rape and attempted murder of Jennifer Shute. Now I watched this interview, the police, like there's a, like you can watch like the whole thing. And he literally is surprised that she didn't die. Like he was like, wait, what? She's alive. And you see him like, like he's emotional, really. I don't know if it's fake, but he's like emotional. His voice is cracking and he's like, there's not a day that goes by where I don't think about that poor baby. If she was a poor baby, why did you do that to her? He then tells police, you know, I pulled a little girl from her bedroom window. She was freaking out. She was crying. She was asking for her mother. You know, I was telling her everything's going to be okay. I took this little girl out. I drove her around. I took her into the field. You know, I raped her and then I, I cut her throat. He said, she was innocent. I was sick, a deranged little punk. And I'm just like, how do you even live with yourself? If that's what you think about yourself, like, how do you live with yourself? He was 20, 20. So in the interview, he breaks down, like, she's alive, she's alive. Like, he's so, like, he's acting like it's a miracle and, like, he had something to do with it being, like, I don't know, it almost seems like he's like, oh, I didn't kill her. I, like, I can't explain it. Like, it's it's like he felt like he was the one that kept her alive. Just, does that make sense? And as he's crying, the detective's like, oh, I, I can see that this affects you a lot. And he says, um, Dennis responds, I, I prayed, I prayed for her every day because I'm a firm believer in Christ. If you're a firm believer, why did you do that? Like, I don't, these people, like, I don't understand the logic. Don't understand it. To a little eight-year-old girl that has, there was no way she could even fight you. There was no way she was going to win in that situation. So after that day, police and Jennifer, then they begin to prepare for trial. Like, can you imagine how she felt after 19 years? It's proof, like it's DNA proof that, 
this guy was the one that did it to you. And the crazy thing is he's not even that old. So I feel like that would have made it even more like, because he's got so much life to live and he's lived his like youth well after doing that. So he was going to be charged with attempted capital murder in her case. And they had to wait for trial, which the police told Jennifer was going to take about a year or so. So the trial would have taken place close to the 20 year anniversary of her attack. And due to Dennis's behavior and the fact that he was crying and, you know, acting really upset about it, he was placed on suicide watch while he was held in prison. They knew when he was arrested that he had tried to commit suicide apparently after the murder or the he, he, what he believed to be the murder of Jennifer shoot in 1990. And the first thing Jennifer said to the police were like, do not let him kill himself. Do not let him do that. Like, watch him. And she really wanted to see it through. She would not face him until the trial and she wanted to face him. She wanted to see him pay for what he did to her face to face. So after his arrest for attempted um, murder and rape on Jennifer in 2009, Dennis took one more thing away from Jennifer. He committed suicide. He killed himself while he was held in the county jail. He hung himself with a noose he made out from his bed cover in May 2010. So he only lasted nine months. And it's so infuriating. Like, I can't even imagine how Jennifer felt because she had this victim impact statement that she had written that she wanted to read to him, like to him in his trial, but... She never obviously got to. So she, what she did is she took it to his grave and she read it to him at his grave. And I want to read it to you guys. She wrote, you chose the wrong little 45 pound eight year old girl to try and murder because for 19 years, I've thought about you every single day and helped search for you. And every year that passes has given me more strength and drive for when I finally would be face to face with you as I am today. And like, it's bullshit. I mean, I th it's good that she got to read it at his grave, but it's just bullshit that he, slithery snake, snuck away from it. Jennifer further states that she wanted to show him he didn't win and that I'm a strong survivor and I want to show him how strong I am and to show victims that no matter what obstacles you come across or how long you have to wait for justice, that as long as you're strong and determined, you can get the justice you want. I mean, yeah, I fully agree with her. It takes so much strength to not just be a victim your entire life, to fight for it, to fight for yourself, to fight for others and keep going on and keep living your life. Even though it would have been difficult for her, I don't think we'll ever understand unless we've been through something like that. She's been using her story again to help others like a lot of other survivors that we know. She travels the country even talks about her experience and, you know, shares with others how to move on. Now, obviously this attack wasn't just like, she didn't just recover and everything was perfect. In 2007, when she was 25 years old, she was diagnosed with a condition called hydrocell pinks, which is basically a condition where your fallopian tubes are blocked and filled with fluid. And obviously that affects your fertility, right? You need your fallopian tubes to be open. And she was just left confirmed infertile after the attack and the um this infection well the fallopian tubes became blocked because she received an infection from her attacker and then from like because the thing is he didn't like cut her down there or something but I think maybe he passed on an STD or STI to her 
And back then, maybe it just was not able to be diagnosed or treated. They probably didn't have the medication for it. So she was left infertile. And that was really, really sad for Jennifer because she was an only child and she really wanted a big family. That was that was always her biggest dream. And I can't even imagine going through that. Like she was a healthy little girl. And then, you know, I know a lot of people when they want to have kids, suddenly they find out about infertility. It's just becomes, you know, it's, it's a sensitive topic. But to know that this man, this selfish, sick man took it away from you, I feel like it's like one blow after another, you know? So enter Dr. Craig Witz, and he was a Houston fertility doctor. He was a specialist, and he offered his services to Jennifer and her fiancé for free. Like, how amazing is that? IVF treatments, I think in America, it's like $10,000 to $20,000, but it's pretty similar, if not more expensive here in Australia at times. And amazingly, this doctor, he, Dr. Witz, he offered Jennifer this treatment for free twice. So she was able to carry on with two pregnancies through this doctor's amazing generosity. And Jennifer has been married to Jonathan Martinez since May 2004. And they live in Texas and they have two children, a boy and a girl, Jenna and Jonah. So I'm just so glad that that happened for her because, you know, a lot of people don't recognize the struggles of victims and I feel like this doctor was amazing, really kind and generous to do that. Jennifer continues to be an outspoken victim's rights advocate and said that although she still bears a lot of the scars from that night in 1990, she has also gained incredible strength through her survival. She's realized that she's still here despite everything. She's still here. He didn't do it. He didn't. He couldn't you know, live with himself, but she's still here. She's the one with the voice now and she can still tell her story and help inspire so many people around the world. Wow, guys, what a story. And thank you so much, Monica, again, for bringing this to my attention. I'd never heard of it. It's always inspiring to hear these stories of survival, always. Despite the horrific things that people go through, like, I can't even imagine. The amazing strength of a human being is something I think I'll always be, like, wowed by. It's dissatisfying to know that Dennis took the easy way out when he was so close to just paying, finally paying for what he did to Jennifer. And I'm sure not only to her, but all his other victims along the way. I'm sure he's definitely done things to a lot more people and maybe not at the same severity, but he's definitely done things for sure. He clearly also wasn't very good with the knife. Like, why use that as your weapon? Like, why? Like, ugh, he was an idiot. His poor kids will also have to live forever with a father like him, but I think it's better off. I mean, for sure they know that his father, their father is a coward because he took his own life so that he didn't have to face what he did. But I hope that they don't feel the need that they, you know, sometimes you think like, oh, that's my father. Is that going to be me? I hope they don't feel that kind of way, you know? I also wish I could find out a little bit more about Jennifer's mother, Elaine. I would have liked to hear her thoughts and how she felt what she did during those 14 hours that Jennifer went missing. And they don't really talk about their relationship now. I'm sure they're still close. She was a single mom. I'm sure they have a good relationship. But I just would have liked to know a little bit more about, about her. Jennifer is such a strong, resilient woman. To live for 19 years without knowing who this man was and knowing he was out there still most likely ready to do it again to someone else or even to you. Like, it's scary, you know. She was very, very strong to be able to still fight. 
So let me know your thoughts on today's case, guys. I hope you found this story very inspiring, as gruesome as some parts were. And let me know your thoughts in the comments down below. And I will see you in the next one, guys. Besitos. Bye.